This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. The Colossians this summer, if you've been around, and uh, today we're going to wrap it up, and we're going to go to the last chapter, chapter 4, and if you have your Bibles, you'd want to turn there to chapter 4 of Colossians. And if you'd like to use one of the Bibles located in the seat back in front of you, you're going to find this particular passage on page 985. Would you mind if I asked you one more time to stand if you're able in honor of God's word? Thank you. We wrapped it up last week with verse 1, so we're going to pick up at verse 2 of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, meaning he is from Colossa. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Meaning, these men were Jews. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, also always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her home. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, 
write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we have sung, speak. Speak, Lord, please. You speak. You speak to us. May we hear, may we listen, may we see, and may we know Christ today, all for your glory and for yours alone. We worship you now. In the name of Christ, amen. You may all have a seat. Thank you. Well, Paul, Paul's just put the finishing touches on his letter. A letter penned not with his own hand, but with the hand of a transcriber while he dictated the words, the words that we so now treasure and hold in our hands today, this book of the Colossians. If you remember, the Colossians were a church filled with saints, as far as we can tell, that Paul had never met. And yet, it's written, he had not ceased to pray for them. And his struggle, in other words, his agonizing love for them was deeply, deeply profound. Unceasing prayer agonizing love for a distant church all while imprisoned in order, and I quote from chapter 1, verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. That's a primary passion behind Paul's letter, to make the word of God fully known. And one thing we have learned throughout this summer series is that the Colossians, those Christians, had begun to do what many of us Christians do today. And that's to begin to think and believe that there's more to salvation than belief or trust in the person of Jesus and in Him alone. That somehow, somehow, his perfect life and subsequent death on a cross were insufficient. They weren't adequate to cover all of our sins and forgive them and to open, if you will, that narrow, narrow gate that welcomes us into God's family forever. To put it differently, Christ just isn't enough. And that family, that is a heresy. It's a lie. And sadly, that heresy has haunted Christians like the Colossians and even us for over 2,000 years. Now, to all of us, I preach to myself that sometimes hear that nagging little voice whisper in my head, in your head, 
there's got to be more than Christ alone. Surely there's more. I've got to work harder to be accepted by God. I've got to work harder to be loved by God. I've got to work harder to be received by God. Here's what Paul wrote to the saints in Colossae and for us today. Chapter two, verse 10. You have been filled in him. The New American Standard writes, in him you have been made complete. Complete. Absolutely whole. Jesus is all sufficient, no artificial ingredients added. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And that, my dear family, together with Colossians 2, 10, is rock solid. You can bank on it. And the sufficiency of Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by nailing them to the cross, all that was clearly spelled out and written in the first two chapters of Colossians. And then in chapter 3, Paul lovingly instructs us about how we can live because of Christ's sufficiency. And that affects our growth, it affects our sanctification as Christians, like putting off or putting to death sin and then putting on a Christ-like character that's practically lived out in places like this, our church, in your own personal relationships, like what we talked about last week, and in everything we do, verse 17. And then here now, in this final chapter, Paul moves away from just us now as Christians and adds others. And largely writes that because of Jesus and his all-sufficiency and supremacy and how he's changing us from the inside out, we can now also give this incomprehensible gift of grace, Jesus Christ himself, to other people who are dead, just like you and I once were. And Paul does that with very specific instructions around our prayers and our conduct. Our prayers and our conduct. And then... Paul's final farewell conveys, and I paraphrase here, you can't do this Christian life all by yourself. You need each other. You need each other. Okay, so that's our outline for today. It's others-focused, and it involves our prayers for others, our conduct with others, and our help from others. So we'll start with our prayers for others found in verses two through four. 
Let's ponder for just a moment. Think about this. Think about what God has given to us. I quote from Colossians 3, verse 1. We, who have been raised with Christ, can now seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Wow. And in Him, 1 Peter 2.9, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's who we are in Him. And that means we get to enter the throne room of prayer. We have unfettered access to holy God, and so do all who are humble and repentant. The God of the universe, he hears our voice, he hears our cries, and this should utterly awe us. What a gift. What a blessing. The very act of prayer is a blessing, said Charles Spurgeon. But sometimes we don't know how to pray. So Paul helps us out here a little bit. And he writes, pray steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully. First, steadfastly. Steadfastly. Ever find yourself wanting to give up on prayer? Find yourself saying, what's the use? God knows all things. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. So why pray? Well, here's at least one reason why. Because Proverbs 15, 8 states that the prayer of the upright is his delight. God delights to hear our prayers. I quote from Charles Spurgeon again. He, as a father, takes pleasure in the lispings of his own babes, the stammerings of his newborn sons and daughters. And if any of you here are parents, you can relate. We can relate. We don't want our kids holed up in their rooms, right? We want to be with them and we want to hear them talk. And our Father in heaven, he too longs to hear from us his children. He wants to listen to our voice because he loves us. And in his perfect wisdom, for whatever reason, we don't fully understand it, how could we? He not only delights in our prayers, but he commands us to pray and has chosen to use prayer as a means to pour out grace upon grace upon grace. 
It's not our place, it's not my place to shake a fist at God about his ways like why do I have to pray? It's our place to trust his ways and then by God's grace remain determined to never ever stop praying, to never ever giving up always trusting and always believing that with God, all things truly are possible, that is steadfast prayer. We can also pray watchfully, watchfully. And that's like paying very close attention to what's going on, watching. First, watching what's going on within us, like our thoughts and our emotions and our temptations and our struggles and our discouragements. Those things, family, can be barometers to us, and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane experienced all that, and what did Jesus say to them? Watch, watch, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The watchfulness, you see, can be introspective, but it should also be extrospective, like paying very close attention to what's going on outside of us, being very keen observers of the things that are happening in the world around us, could be your world of work, your world of, world of home, of school, here in the church, our government, our neighborhood, whatever it is. So you see, watching is both internal and external. And what we should see and what we do see needs to inform our prayer life so that it's bespoke and specific bespoke and specific. I know sometimes we get into ruts. I do. And our prayers can become rote. They become routine. They become repetitive with the same words over and over and over again. And that's one of the reasons why we pray as we do here every Sunday morning and afternoon as Luke just prayed being watchful about the needs of our body, about what's happening in our government, in our state, in our country, across the world, the church universal. That's watchfulness. And if we ever get lost, family, if we ever get confused in our prayers, here is your magnetic north. Here's your bullseye. Here's your epicenter. It's the expectant hope of Christ's return. That his kingdom would come. Would we all pray together fervently, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, quickly, come. Let's pray that together as a family. So that's praying watchfully, now praying thankfully. 
And we can always be thankful because no matter how God answers our prayers, and he always does, we may not like the answer, but he answered it. And the answer could be wait. Even so, we can always rest peacefully, knowing with absolute 100% confidence that our Father who is in heaven will give good things. Good things to those who ask him, said Jesus in Matthew 7. So, let's give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, wrote Paul to the church at Thessalonica, his first letter, chapter 5. So how do we pray? Steadfastly, watchfully, thankfully. Now, what to pray? Verses 3 and 4. If you look at the text, Paul has two very specific prayer requests of the saints in Colossa. That he and those with him would have opportunities for and boldness with the gospel. Opportunities and boldness, that's what Paul asked for. So opportunities for what? Well, look at verse three. That God may open to us a door for the word. Folks, doors for the gospel don't open by themselves. It happens supernaturally. God is the one that opens the doors, not us. We don't shoehorn the gospel into people's lives with our might. We don't shove it in people's faces with force. When that happens, we're the ones that are the offense. Let the gospel be the offense. Now, we may still suffer for the sake of the gospel, and we should not be surprised when that happens. In fact, the Bible says we should consider ourselves blessed when that happens. But God's the one that opens doors with His strength and by His will. A good example of this is found in 2 Corinthians 2.12, where Paul writes that when he came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened, and hear this, in the Lord. In the Lord. He's the one that opened that door for Paul and Troas. Now, prayer is a means to an end. The means and the end, they are both God-ordained, and his end is that his kingdom come, partly through prayers as a means. And God, in his all-perfect wisdom, he ordained that we, his children, get to play a vital role to that end. So, let's pray for opportunities for the gospel. Now, like Paul, 
Let's also pray for boldness. Boldness. Paul? The Apostle Paul needs boldness? <laughs> Apparently, he asked for it. For what? To declare the mystery of Christ. Verse 3. And what's the mystery? <laughs> it's Christ. We could even say here the mystery which is Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, he was once concealed and now revealed. Concealed, revealed. That's the mystery. And he, Jesus, is the message of the cross. And that message, Paul writes in verse 4, if you look, needs to be made clear. In other words, make it clearly visible and don't water it down. <laughs> the cross is the cross. The gospel is, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. And it's foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Now, I don't think any of us particularly like or want to be perceived as a fool, right? We don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I sure hope I look like a fool today. Uh, no, we don't do that. But remember this, family, as Christians, it's not you that's a fool. It's the message you carry that's perceived as foolishness until God opens blind eyes just like yours and just like mine. So let's pray. Let's pray for boldness, for clarity, and let's not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body, said Jesus in Matthew 10. Let's watch. Let's listen intently during every conversation that we have, looking for that crack in the door that God opens. He's the one that opens it and then declare the mystery of Christ. That is our prayer for others. Now we move to our next point. Our conduct with others, verses five and six. We need to notice here, first of all, that Paul refers to others as outsiders. Outsiders simply means those who were not of faith in Christ and therefore outside of the church. Paul used the exact same adverb in 1 Thessalonians 4.12 when he exhorted the Christians there to walk properly toward who? Outsiders. When I read that word this week as I studied for our time together today, at face value, it sounded a bit cold to me, outsiders. But listen, Paul, Paul knows these are human beings. They're image bearers of the Most High God with heartbeats, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost they're eternally bankrupt. 
And our hearts, our, heart, our hearts ought to break for them and then move us really to profoundly consider every encounter we have with them. And Paul uses two words to define those encounters. Walk and speech. Walk and speech. First walk, verse 5. Our walk is our conduct of life, our order of life. Simply put, our behavior. And for us, as born-again Christians, it has been transformed and it is being transformed. It's literally skilled by practical application from God's word like what we're doing right now. Family, we, we know the word of life. And that radically changes us to put off sin and to put on full display toward outsiders, not just insiders like us, things like in Colossians 3, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, patience, and even forgiving them when they've wronged you. These are fruits of the Spirit. And they allow us to, as it says in Philippians 2.15, shine as lights in the world. We Christians, we should sparkle to them. Sparkle. And that's what it means to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. But Paul then adds a very interesting participle here, and I quote, making the best use of the time. What does that mean? Well, it's like buying time. In fact, the King James writes, redeeming the time. In other words, snatch it up. Snatch up every opportunity you have to comport yourself with non-Christians in a manner worthy of the Lord because time is a non-renewable resource. You'll never get it back. And this means paying very close attention to the needs and the concerns and the heartaches of our neighbors our classmates, our co-workers, anyone that we come into contact with and then coming alongside them, walking with them and serving them and helping them. Ever heard of the phrase, the Latin phrase, carpe diem? Literally means pluck the day. Seize the day. We could say seize the time with others because behold, now is the day of salvation. We could say now is the time of salvation. That's our walk. And now verse six, our speech. And the kind of speech that Paul's referring to isn't preaching, it's not teaching. It's about regular daily conversations with others and we have them all the time. Did you know that the average person 
will speak between 2,000 and 10,000 words a day. You pick any number in between, it's still a lot of words. This sermon is comprised of 4,500 words. This is the second time I've done it. And by the time I'm finished, I will have reached my quota. (laughs) But words, words matter. Speech matters. According to verse six, they ought to be gracious and they ought to be salty. Gracious and salty, let your speech always be gracious. Gracious meaning kind, sensitive, gentle, truthful, thoughtful, wholesome, loving, and it's gracious no matter who you are with. Now if you notice here, there's a little adverb always inserted. And that word is key because gracious speech needs to be our habit. It should naturally come from our heart. Graciousness ought to be pumping through our veins. And you know, I'm always more than just a little bit aghast when I hear self-described Christians use crude language, even of the slightest kind. It should go without stating, but crude and vulgar words are not gracious speech, and frankly, they're utterly unbecoming of a believer. And one of the reasons why most speech comes out of mouth in the first place is because what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, said Jesus in Matthew 15. So part of always having gracious speech involves always, always guarding our hearts. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. And when we guard our hearts and seek the things that are above and set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth, then the natural habit of our speech is going to be gracious. And it will be a powerful, powerful testimony of the gospel of Christ in us. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, and listen to this, that it may give grace to those who hear. Gracious speech gives grace to each. Gracious speech gives grace to each. All right, now what about salt? It's a mineral, has multifaceted benefits, purposes, uses. What does Paul mean here? Well, let's weigh the phrase, speech that is seasoned with salt against the whole context of the sentence that Paul wrote. 
which includes, if you look, so that, that's the purpose, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Every person is unique. Every situation is unique. Every opportunity is unique. Every conversation is unique. It's true, the gospel never changes. It's always, always salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as found in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. But when we speak of the gospel of Christ, we also need to let it be winsome. Let it be flavorful. Let it enrich every different person that you meet and every different situation that you're in. Some recipes need more salt, some need less. We can't speak to children the same way we speak to adults and vice versa. So by God's grace, let's do and let's ask the Lord to help us do what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 23. Let me read that to you. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Why? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now that's our speech. Our speech with others, and I leave us with this final verse, and I think it should be one of our top memory verses. I'm gonna read it to you in the English Standard Version. I memorized this years ago in the King James. It's 1 Peter 3.15. Listen but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think it would be also fair to say gracious and salty. That's our speech with others. Now we're gonna to get to our last point in just a moment. But I wanna encourage you, I hope, with a personal story about prayer and conduct. All to the glory of God. Last week, if you were here, you might have heard a bit of my testimony and it included a reference to my, to my father. He was a fighter pilot, a self-made kind of man, tough, determined. <laughs> and as a young teenager, I was the first in our family to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I remember coming home that night and telling my mom and dad that I had just become a Christian. And I'll never forget what my mom said to me. She said, Tommy, I thought you always were a Christian. And I said, no, 
no, mom. And I told my mom and dad that I didn't know exactly what had happened to me. All I knew was that I was a new man and that Jesus saved me from myself, my sin. And my mom became a Christian within months of me, praise God. But my dad, <laughs> he would often say to me, Tom, I respect your religion and I believe in God myself, but I'm gonna do it my way. That's my dad. Of course, my dad's way wasn't God's way and God's way is the only way that matters. So I prayed for my dad and I prayed and I prayed, sometimes late at night and many times with tears. I never stopped praying. I shared Jesus with him over and over and over again whenever there was an open door that God created. And I tried, I tried by God's grace to conduct myself and live a Christ-like life in front of him year after year after year. I did that for 35 years. And one day, my dad pulled me aside in my backyard, and what he said to me is branded on my brain. He said, son, I've watched your life your whole life, and I've listened to you talk. And I don't know what it is that you have, but whatever that is, I want it. My dad, not much later, he became a Christian. And I baptized him. He died 10 years ago, but he didn't really die. He's alive with Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. Now family, I didn't do it perfectly. And I didn't do it all the time, but with steadfast, watchful, and thankful prayers, with wise conduct and gracious, salty speech, by my mom as well, by the way, all that eventually became a means of God's saving grace to my dad, Colonel Evald Glenn Krugel. And one day, many of you will meet him. So be encouraged, family. Pray for others and conduct yourselves wisely with others because God is faithful and will use those means of grace. May not always turn out that way, but God is still faithful. Now let's turn to the last section of this letter and close out our study of Colossians. Our help from others, verses seven through 18. Now this is the part of the letter that most of us, including yours truly, <laughs> often just kind of skim over. 
And frankly, it deserves its own separate sermon. Wish we could do that. But if you're like me, we can assume, wrongly, mind you, that mentioning 10 names in only 12 verses can't really be that deep or meaningful or helpful or or instructive. But this band of brothers and one sister, all insiders, except one, not outsiders, they're left in this letter as examples for us to either follow or to take warning from, like Demas, where it's written in 2 Timothy 4.10, was in love with this world and deserted Paul and ran off to Thessalonica. Demas is a warning to us about how destructive love of this world can be, even after hanging out with a guy like Paul for more than two years. And this should be another reminder to us to hold fast to Colossians 3.1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. But all the others, <laughs> Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus who is called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Nympha, and Archippus, I'm not sure if I said Archippus twice. Maybe it was Aristarchus. But regardless, Aristarchus and Archippus, they're all described by Paul with very loving and very endearing personal adjectives and nouns. Descriptors I think all of us would like to be associated with. Let me list them off for you quickly. Beloved brother, meaning loved within the family of Christ. Faithful, meaning reliable, dependable, trustworthy. Fellow bondservant, meaning a laborer and minister of the Lord. Fellow prisoner, meaning a captive for the sake of Christ. Comforter, meaning encourager. Servant of Christ, meaning a slave of of Christ, it's a good thing. And hard worker, meaning fervent and agonizing passion of hard work for the sake of the gospel. That's not a bad Christian resume. And what a team, (laughs) what a team. And that's what I hope to leave you with from this set of closing verses. Paul, the ever so gifted Apostle Paul, author of about 28% of the New Testament, all by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Even Paul needed prayer, and even Paul needed others. He needed Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside in the ministry together. He needed Christians that loved him, that he could trust that would labor together with him, that were willing to lay down their lives for each other and for Christ, that could encourage him, that had a servant's heart and a zeal and a passion to work hard for the sake of the kingdom. 
And every single one of them came with different gifts, filling the needs that others lacked, including Paul's. Paul couldn't walk this walk by himself, and neither can we. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another, Proverbs 27, 17. And two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up, Ecclesiastes 4. Paul never ministered alone and neither should we. Look around you right now. Look. This is your band of brothers and sisters. All sufficient in Christ supreme. All to make the word of God fully known among us as insiders and amongst the world as outsiders. And I leave us with a closing benediction, if you will, the same last four words of Paul to the church at Colossa. We have culled through and combed through almost 2,000 words in this letter. And we need this to have and to live any of it, and he will give it to us if we ask for it. Hear this. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray together.